Welcome to the Poetry Corner podcast. I'm Dr. Timothy Bartell. Today we are going to review a book. It's something that we haven't done on this podcast before, but the lovely folks at Gray Wolf Press uh, kindly sent me a copy of Tracy K. Smith's new collection, Wade in the Water. Uh, we've talked about Smith on this podcast before. She's the current poet laureate. We looked at uh, a poem called The Universe as Primal Scream uh, months ago from her last collection, Life on Mars. Um, that was published before she became Poet Laureate. She won the poetry, uh, the Pulitzer Prize for Poetry for it um, and was soon afterward nominated to uh, Poet Laureate of the United States, which is kind of the highest poetry honor that one can have in our country. So I want to I want to talk about Smith's new book. Smith's new book is called Wade in the Water Poems. And it showcases Smith both doing what we we saw her to be excellent at in Life on Mars and her earlier collections, but also expanding out into uh, some very interesting experiments with found poetry. So I want to read actually probably about four or five poems today to give you a sense of what her new collection includes and hopefully entice you to check out her collection. Uh, Smith is one of our most, I think, important poets writing today, and the fact that she's Poet Laureate means she's kind of setting the example and the standard for what poetry can and should be in America right now. So I want to start in the first section of her book. Her book is divided into actually four sections, and this is a poem from the first section called Hill Country. I really loved it, partly because partway through the poem, it takes a very interesting turn. Listen for the turn, and then I want to say a couple words about why I think this turn and the subject of the poem uh, is well done and important. This poem is called Hill Country. He comes down from the hills, from the craggy rock, the shrubs, the scrawny live oaks and dried up junipers, down from the cloud bellies and the bellies of hawks, from the Caracas stalking carcasses, from the clear sun-smacked soundlessness that shrouds him, from the weathered bed of planks outside the cabin where he goes to be alone with his questions. God comes down along the road with his windows unrolled so the twigs and hanging vines can slap and scrape against him and his jeep. Down past the buck caught in the hog trap that kicks and heaves, bloodied, blinded by the whiff of its own death, which God, thank God, staves off. He downshifts, crosses the shallow trickle of river that only just last May scoured the side of the canyon to rock, gets out, walks along the limestone bank, castor beans, cactus, scat of last night's coyotes. Down below the hilltops, he squints at a shadow, tree backing tree, Dark depth the eye glides across, not bothering to decipher what it hides. A pair of dragonflies mate in flight. Tiny flowers throw frantic color at his feet. If he tries, if he holds his mind in place and wills it, he can almost believe in something larger than himself, rearranging the air. He squints at the jeep glaring in bright sun, stares a while at patterns the tall branches cast onto the undersides of leaves. Then God climbs back into the cab, returning to everywhere. So this is a poem that 
if it wasn't for the main character being who the main character is, would be very typical of especially the last 50 years of American lyric poetry. There are many, many poems about the author or a speaker driving through the woods, driving up into the hills, observing nature, maybe learning something about quietness or the violence of nature and the sadness of man in the face of it. Um, or maybe even just naturalistic description, just a description of the beauty of nature without a, a sort of moral or abstract lesson. Very typical in late 20th century lyric. But Smith is having fun with this genre of the observer in nature. It's God who is the observer in nature. And we don't actually get it until, gosh, almost 10 lines down from the weathered bed of planks outside the cabin where he goes to be alone with his questions, God comes down along the road with his windows unrolled. If it wasn't God, we could believe that this is just some guy who lives up in the woods. But the fact that it's God who lives in the woods, I think, makes this a fascinating poem. And I want to highlight something that I'm not sure that I read correctly the first time. It's the shadow image. As I read it, I realized there was more going on in it than I was noticing. We have, he downshifts, crosses the shallow trickle of river that only just last May scoured the side of the canyon to rock, gets out, walks along the limestone bank, castor beans, cactus, scat of last night's coyotes. Down below the hilltops, he squints out at shadow. He squints out at shadow. God is looking at the darkness, the dimness in nature. Tree backing tree, dark depth the eye glides across, not bothering to decipher what it hides. It's an odd image. For a moment, when I was reading it earlier, I got the image that God is squinting out a shadow, but he squints out at shadow. God here seems to be, well, obviously very human. He lives up in the woods. He sits up in his cabin with questions. He comes down and looks at nature. There's even this odd image of God imagining that he is a created being, or perhaps a lesser being. We have, he can almost believe in something larger than himself, rearranging the air. God observes nature in a way that's very much like man observing nature. And I suppose that there's a way to read this poem that makes us feel like, oh, God's just one of us. Uh, there's that old 90s song, what if God was one of us, just a stranger on the bus. Obviously, there's a important tradition in Christian theology that thinks about Christ in his human nature, in his experiencing of the world like us, in his looking at the shadow. Of course, shadow, I think we can see as both literal but also figurative, the, the shadow of death, of pain, of human suffering. But Smith's God isn't just the human observer. He's not just stuck and helpless in time. He, and I think this is very clever of, of Smith to do this, halfway through the poem, he actually saves the life of an animal. Down past the buck caught in the hog trap that kicks and heaves, bloodied, blinded by the whiff of its own death, which God, thank God, 
staves off. It's interesting because if I was writing this, not being as bold or accomplished as Smith, I think I would put God saving the buck at the end of the poem. But it's interesting that she puts it in the middle. It's just one of the things God does. It's part of God's daily routine, saving the life of the buck. And it's interesting, it's a buck caught in a hog trap. The The trap isn't even for the buck. And I think this reinforces perhaps what's alluded to later. One of the shadows, one of the problems of uh, fallen nature is that creatures are harmed by things that aren't even meant to harm them. Creatures are harmed by freak accident. The buck is caught in the hog trap. And God, the God who is the character here, God is the one who seems to, to spare this accidental suffering. Now, like I said, I would want to put that at the end. I would want there to be this salvific moment. But that salvific moment is placed by Smith as the poet partway through the poem to show it. it's an everyday thing that God does. What happens at the end? Well, he's been squinting and staring at shadow, at the beauty of dragonflies, of flowers. He almost could believe in something higher than himself. A very curious thing to say. He squints at the jeep glaring in the bright sun, stares a while at patterns the tall branches cast onto the undersides of leaves. Then God climbs back into the cab, returning to everywhere. And this is the moment where I think the personified God as, you know, the woodsman who lives up in the woods, all of a sudden turns into the, the literal God of theology. He doesn't return to his cabin. He returns to everywhere. God, of course, is omnipresent in classical theology. And he returns there. This is sort of a, a moment of incarnation for God, experiencing nature, squinting at nature, maybe even being saddened and a little helpless or at least just patient in nature, saving nature, but then returning to everywhere. I think of the passages in scripture that talk about God being the least of these. As much as you've done to the least of these, Christ says in, in the final judgment scene in the Gospels, as much as you've done to the least of these, you've done unto me. This is an interesting riff on that. This isn't God as the homeless man in need of food. This isn't God as the orphan child in need of comfort. This is God as the solitary wanderer in the woods who comes down from everywhere, from omnipresence, perhaps from omnipotence, to be a while with his creation. It's, a, it's an interesting riff on this style of 20th century lyric, and I think it's one of the things that Smith does well. She's not giving us a grand theodicy. She's not giving us a uh, world or time-spanning vision of the creator. She's giving us a little lyric snapshot of God as woodsman. On the next page, she gives us actually a more conventional image of God creating animal life and then human life. It's a very short poem, but I think it's an interesting follow-up to the last one. This is called Deadly. The holy thinks tiger, then watches the thing wriggle, divide, Stagger up out of the sea to rise on legs and tear into the side of a loping gazelle. Thinks man and witnesses the armies of trees and every nation of beast and the wild, furious ocean and the epochs of rock tremble.
this is a great two-part poem. There are two movements in it. And I like how the juxtaposition and similarity of the images intensifies her point. It's called deadly, so you're thinking, okay, this is going to have to do with deadly things or deadliness. The holy thinks tiger. That's the first line. The holy uh, seems to be an oblique reference to God, the creator, that which is holy and divine. It thinks tiger, and tiger is italicized, then watches the thing wriggle, divide, stagger up out of the sea to rise on legs and tear into the side of a loping gazelle. This is kind of a merciless description. Uh, you have a little bit of almost sweetness or curiousness in this description of it staggering up out of the sea. It seems to be an infant tiger, a newborn tiger. And what's the first thing it does? It tears into the side of a gazelle. The tiger is deadly. Okay, cool. If we had that as the only bit of the poem, it might feel a little short, but okay, it's the creation of a deadly tiger. But of course, that's juxtaposed, as poetry by humans often does, with an image of the human. As humans, we, we kind of can't stop writing about who we are. We can't stop writing about how we're amazed and mystified, and I think in this poem, kind of frustrated and terrified at ourselves. And it's interesting that in this next image, she gives an image of not just animal life, but even inanimate nature reacting to the terror of man. Thinks man and witnesses the armies of trees and every nation of beast and the wide furious ocean and the epochs of rock tremble. All that has come before, and this word epochs of rock, I think, indicates that Smith's vision of the time that it's taken to lead up to the creation of man might be a long time. It might be epochs. Now, this is obviously not a podcast about the age of the earth, but one of the traditional ways of looking at the seven days of creation has been that each day seems to represent perhaps a long time, perhaps an age, or maybe it's just a day. I'll let the philosophers and theologians and scientists deal with that one, at least in Smith's conception, it's taken a long time to get to the creation of man. Epochs of rock are already present when man shows up. And what do they do? They tremble. What does the sea do? It trembles. What do the nations of beasts do? Even the tiger, that the first thing it does when it's created is tear into the side of a loping gazelle. It trembles. One could say, uh, perhaps this would be an understatement, this is a pretty bleak view of mankind. But also, Smith knows, and we know, the history of man, which is a history often of violence, which is a history often not of just the solitary wanderer in nature, like we got in the last poem, but man as the destroyer. It's a little scary, a little bleak. But it's interesting that God in the last poem was the peaceful one, the one who saves from death. These two poems being back-to-back, -back, I think, create an interesting image. God is the example of the one who is gentle to nature. Man is the example of the one who is more terrible than the tiger. Let's flip forward to the second section. The second section of Smith's collection is one of the most daring and strange sections, I think, in all of her uh, poetry collections. They technically count as found poems, these poems that she's writing. 
a found poem is where a poet will take a previously written piece of text and either rearrange or selectively edit those words into lines and stanzas, if they're not already in lines and stanzas, and kind of draw out the poetic or lyric nature of that. People do found poems with all sorts of things. Uh, she herself has a found poem where she quotes snippets of the Declaration of Independence in an interesting way. I'll, I'll read to you from Declaration. He has sent hither swarms of officers to harass our people. He has plundered our, ravaged our, destroyed the lives of our, taking away our, abolishing our most valuable, and altering fundamentally the forms of our. In every stage of these oppressions we have petitioned for, redress in the most humble terms. Our repeated petitions have been answered only by repeated injury. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our immigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. So these are selections from the second half of the Declaration of Independence. We usually think of when in the course of human events, etc., etc. This is from the sections that have the uh, list of grievances against um, King George III. What Smith does is she selects phrases from this that kind of take away the specificity of what has been plundered, what has been ravaged, what has been destroyed, and kind of makes it a sequence describing this sort of universal desire for redress, this universal desire for um, for freedom from suffering. And if anything, I think it, it intensifies the beauty and heartbreak of this section of the Declaration of Independence that we don't often think of. And by the last three lines, I think that she has specified things enough that this becomes a poem not about the colonists, but about slave experience. We have reminded them of the circumstances of our emigration and settlement here, taken captive on the high seas to bear. Now, of course, emigration and settlement of the colonists was not take, being taken captive, not being made to be uh, the bearers of burdens of others, but in juxtaposing this, the circumstances of our immigration with taken captive on the high seas to bear, this suggests slave experience. This su suggests being taken captive on the coast of Africa, being born on the middle passage over the high seas, and then being forced to bear. One of the reasons why I think looking at poetry, lyric poems, as part of collections is important, the poems after Declaration are all found poems that quote from the writings of slaves during the Civil War period. So if we, if we got the sense that this taken captive on the high seas to bear might be suggestive of slave experience, she shows, yes, in the context that this section of the collection is going to be about, we should think of slave experience. I want to read two of the short found poems. Um, these are both letters to Abraham Lincoln by slaves. And this is from a sequence uh, that she calls, I will tell you the truth about this. I will tell you all about it. And these are snippets from slave letters that are arranged into lines of verse. Originally, they were in prose. I want to read you two of them. Carlisle, Pennsylvania, November 21st, 
1864. Mr. Abraham Lincoln, I want to know, sir, if you please, whether I can have my son released from the army. He is all the support I have now. His father is dead, and his brother that was all the help I had has been wounded. Twice he has not had nothing to send me yet. Now I am old, and my head is blossoming for the grave. And if you do, I hope the Lord will bless you and me. They say that you will sympathize with the poor. He belonged to the 8th Regiment, Colored Troops. He is a sergeant. Mart Welcome is his name. Now, this is a touching letter, regardless of whether it's in a poem or not. But there are lines in it, I think, that are very suggestive of lyric poetry. I am old and my head is blossoming for the grave. If you do, I hope the Lord will bless you and me, and that they say that you will sympathize with the poor. This is, I think, when put into lines of poetry, this becomes a prayer. And Abraham Lincoln, oddly, is in this sort of godlike role. Um, this is only intensified in, in perhaps one of the most, I think, resonant poems and, and the shortest in this sequence. Bel Air, Maryland, August 25th, 1864. Mr. President, it is my desire to be free, to go to see my people on the eastern shore. My mistress won't let me. Will you please let me know if we are free and what I can do? Uh, this is the kind of writing that I imagine uh, Smith reading through these slave letters. And she, she has a whole section at the end of this collection that talk about her work with these slave letters. I imagine her reading this and kind of being floored by this deep resonance of this question. Will you please let me know if we are free? There's this uh, obviously very highly contextualized problem, right? If, if you're a slave and there's a war for your freedom going on, there's this question of, really, I don't know if I'm free yet. Tell me, what am I allowed to do? It's a very practical question, but also there's this great human question of, are we free? Freedom becomes both the very political, historical question of the freedom of the slaves, but also this larger human question of, are we free? Do we have free will? Am I destined to be what I am, to be what I don't want to be? Tell me if we are free. What can I do? Once again, I think this almost becomes a prayer both literally to Abraham Lincoln, tell me what I am. And I think it, it shows the power of Lincoln and also the incredible pressure that must have been his in feeling like the savior of these people or someone who is expected to be, but the Civil War is still going on. I mean, I'll leave it up to the historians to decide what Lincoln felt and faced, what's most, I think, important about these poems and most important about the work that Smith is doing is that she, she doesn't care what Lincoln thinks. She's showing us what do these writers, what do these enslaved persons, what are they feeling? What are the questions that are being raised in them that are both incredibly practical, but also these incredibly universal cries of humanity? I want to finish by looking at one last poem. I won't say much about this poem, but I think it's beautiful and is one of the most highly formal of her poems. It's in the last section of Wade in the Water. This is called Ash. Strange house we must keep and fill. 
house that eats and pleads and kills, house on legs, house on fire, house infested with desire, haunted house, lonely house, house of trick and suck and shrug. Give it to me, house. I need you, baby house. House whose rooms are pooled with blood. House with hands. House of guilt. House that other houses built. House of lies and pride and bone. House afraid to be alone. House like an engine that churns and stalls. House with skin and hair for walls. House the seasons singe and douse. House that believes it is not a house. It's kind of a riddle poem, to save on time, I will say. I think the house is the human body. It is a strange house we must keep and fill. It eats and pleads and kills. Once again, we have this idea which resonates all throughout Wade in the Water, that humans are dangerous. Humans are terrifying. Humans have the potential to not kill, to not be terrifying, to be more like the god of the first poem we looked at to be more like the voices of the enslaved saying, I want freedom, I want community, even when I'm denied it. It's the last line that I think puzzles me the most, house that believes it is not a house. Now, it could just be at the literal level, we don't think that our bodies are houses because, of course, they're not literally houses, they're bodies. But I'm tempted to say that the idea of house is this concept where there's a structure and then there's a living being within it. And possibly, and I think this is something that Smith plays with a lot, there's this question of the life of the soul. Does our body house a deeper reality, a truer, more enduring self? Or are we simply the skin and bones and brain of the house? And Smith, in, in her wonderful way, is a poet who doesn't come out and, you know, preach to us. I don't actually know Smith's current religious or philosophical affiliations, but she suggests that we live in a world that's not just a world of pain and oppression and terror and sometimes brilliant hope and salvation, but one where God and the soul are constantly hovering around us, at least as ideas, but even more perhaps as realities. I love that Smith is our poet laureate. We'll end up with a new one within a year or two, as often happens. I love that these poems are coming out right now, that this is where poetry is. It's not always as formal as I want it to be. Most of the poems I read you weren't particularly formal. But this last poem, Ash, uh, it plays with rhythm. It plays with exact rhyme in surprising places. If you get a chance, check out Tracy K. Smith's Wade in the Water. It's a great book. It's an encouraging book to see from our poet laureate someone who's both doing really well what they do really well, these lyric poems, but also branching out into bigger questions of history and, and theology and original sin and the possibility of redemption. I'm excited to keep reading Tracy K. Smith in the future. This has been Dr. Timothy Bartell, the Poetry Corner podcast at the St. Constantine School. If you have comments for us, feedback, complaints, suggestions, email us at poetrycorner at stconstantine.org. Thank you.